Hello there, everyone. Welcome to Digital Nomad Mastery, the podcast and the video cast where we teach you how to make money while traveling in the traveling around the world. And on today's episode, we have a world traveler who's actually from the U.S. and currently, at the time of this interview, she's over there in Italy. I'm over here in Medellin, Colombia, and through the power of technology, we're able to connect and bring this interview and this uh, insights to you who are listening and watching. Uh, if you're just listening to this, we're on iTunes, make sure you leave us a rating and review. If you're watching this, subscribe to us on YouTube, and we stream both in audio and video uh, for the sake of both types of audience. Uh, so our guest today is Barbara, and uh, she's over there in Italy, as I mentioned, and she has a great website called Hole in the Donut, and we'll be finding out about that in a few minutes. Uh, Barbara, why don't we get to know you a little bit better, if you want to share a little bit more about yourself for the people, people who are listening and watching. Sure. Um, well, let me, since you mentioned it, let me tell you why I named my blog Hole in the Donut. Um, I've spent 36 years in corporate life, basically hating every day. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's my dream since the time I was 11 was always to be a travel photographer and writer, but you kind of get caught up in life and you have mortgage payments and car payments and, you know, you know the deal. So uh, 36 years later, I got really sick and looked up uh, from my sick bed and said, you know, uh, this just isn't doing it for me. I was really seriously ill and afraid that I was going to die before I'd get to do all the things I uh, dreamed about. And I promised myself if I could get better, I would walk away from my corporate life and put a backpack on and travel the world and try and recreate myself into a travel writer and photographer. And that was about 10 and a half years ago. Actually, it was about 11 and a half years ago because it took me a year to recover. And I had always said all those years that I felt like a donut, solid on the outside but empty on the inside. And so when I, when I hit the road, I named the blog hole in the donut. Uh, and I've been traveling ever since. Um, initially, I had a base. I, I sold my home, uh, went out on a first six-month trip and then sold my home. Uh, when I came back, but it had basically that six months of travel had ruined me for ever going back into a traditional job. So I got an apartment in Florida and, and for about another two and a half years kind of wandered around the U.S. writing and then realized that I really wanted to go back internationally. So um, I let go of the apartment in November of 2009 and I've been traveling as a, a full-time digital nomad ever since. No home. That is amazing. Uh, you know, you've been traveling for several years now. Uh, I'd love to hear more about your travel experiences and travel stories. Uh, tell us about some of your favorite destinations, experiences, or memories over the last, uh, you know, uh, a few decades of traveling, and especially the last few years of being a nomad. Well, I've been to, as of right now, 83 countries. Um, so, you know, people ask me all the time, what's your favorite country? And it's hard to answer because you like different places for different reasons. So I'm going to tell you about a few. Um, I, in Europe, um, probably my two favorite countries are Croatia and um, Bulgaria. <clears throat> I like them both very much. My favorite city in Europe is Budapest. Uh, and you'll notice I say Budapest, not Budapest, because that's how they say it over there. It's an absolutely fantastic city, and, I, and I've been there several times. Um, I'm currently in Milan, Italy, another place that I like a lot, and I've been here several times. But then I also seem to have a passion for Asia. 
which is strange because I never really wanted, had no desire to go to Asia until the first time, uh, way before I ever set out to be the travel writer. I think it must have been back in about, I don't know, 2002 maybe, I went to Thailand. And I happened to, I was working in real estate, uh, managing uh, four franchises, Remax franchises, and I had an agent in my office who had married a woman from Thailand, and uh, they had an import-export business, and he said, oh, why don't you go over there? She'll show you around, because she was there six months and in the States six months. And, you know, I just absolutely fell in Thailand from the very first time, in love with Thailand from the very first time I was there. I've kind of been wandering around the world ever since then, looking for my perfect paradise. And I now know that that doesn't exist, but I keep going back to Thailand. Um, and I've, I, I know at some point, because I'm, I'm getting older, you know, I've been on the road now for 10 and a half years, and, and uh, carting all of my stuff around on my back and in a little suitcase is getting a little harder for me up and down the stairs and places that don't have elevators and trucking, you know, my knees are giving out. Um, and so I know I'm gonna at some point want to base again. And I made a decision this year that that would be Thailand. So at the end, cause I winter there, uh, I'm always there for two to three months in the winter. And I think I'll get an apartment full time there and use it as a base so that I don't have to carry everything with me all the time, you know? Um, and then I have to mention one other place. I really, really love Nepal. Uh, I went there the first time in, I think it was 2009 maybe. And I, I, I was there because I, I do yoga and I wanted to, I was having some sort of physical problems. My joints were aching and I thought I just need to sit in one place for a while and, and study some yoga with a, a guru if I can find one. Long story short, I did find one. I, I went for, I think I, I planned on being there three or four weeks, and five months later, I was still in Nepal. And that's the beauty of my lifestyle, you know? I, can, I don't have any plans or schedules. I just kind of go where I want and stay as long as I want, and when I get tired of that place, I move on. So I've been going back to Nepal now uh, at least every year and a half for quite some time. And this family that I met, who the husband is a yogi, I've helped them set up a... Um, a yoga ashram, um, and uh, you know, so it's, uh, it's they're kind of family to me now. And when I go there, I live with them. There's something quite special about the Nepali people. Uh, they are very kind-hearted and loving and warm. And uh, I just can't stay away from that place for, place for too long. <laughs> so that's sort of my short list of top places in the world. Although maybe I would add New Zealand as well. I love New Zealand. I have been to several of those places you mentioned, uh, Budapest, Thailand, Nepal. I absolutely love uh, Nepal in terms of the beauty of the landscape, friendly people, amazing culture. Thailand definitely is in the top of a lot of digital nomads list. That's why there's a big oh, yeah. community over there. And then, uh, you know, um, uh, Bud Budapest, yeah, definitely one of the most beautiful cities in the world. So, uh, yeah, I totally agree there. And uh, at the end of the day, it's so hard to pick your favorites because uh, sometimes for the, the favorite for me is the country I'm in currently. And then, yeah. uh, you, yeah, and you hear other people talking about, like, Nepal. And I was like, oh, yeah, that is one of my favorites, too. So <laughs> it definitely triggers uh, experiences. 
so tell us about some of your struggles. You've been uh, living nomadically for several years now. What are some of the challenges and struggles that you face when you're traveling? You mentioned uh, it's harder to carry stuff. Uh, tell us about some of the other uh, difficulties you, you face as a nomad. Well, you'll probably laugh, but one of the, the, the hardest things is for me to get my hair cut. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, it. not everybody cuts hair really well, and so it's like a it's a crapshoot when you walk into a salon. You don't know what you're getting because you're in a different place every couple of years. In the beginning, I used to color my hair because I was prematurely white, just like my mom, and um, I ended up in uh, back in 2002 whenever I started going to Thailand, uh, I ended up in a salon where they really didn't know what they were doing. They only had three shades of blonde, which is what I used to be. And um, by the time they got done with me, I was three different colors. And I walked out of the shop and I said, that's it. I'm, I'm, going, I'm going natural. I don't care if it's white. So ever since then, I I've, I've, haven't had to deal with the color, but now I'm dealing with getting a decent cut. And this latest cut, which they actually did a pretty good job on, I got in a place called Dole France recently. But, you know, it's like I say, you just never know what you're going to get. Uh, you know, other than that, uh, people ask me all the time about how I handle my medical and dental. Um, I, because I go to Thailand for a couple of months in the winter, that's where my, my dentist is. So I just do my annual checkups there. Um, medical, you know, a lot of the countries that I go to have excellent medical in Malaysia and Thailand. I hope to God I never get sick in, in Nepal because I've actually toured a hospital there. It was pretty frightening. Um, but, you know, India, I go to India, I have a 10-year visa for India, and India has some absolutely phenomenal uh, medical services, except I will say that I was in India last year for six weeks, and I was in the state of Bihar in the north, and in Bodh Gaya, because I'm, I'm Buddhist, and so I was doing the Buddhist pilgrimage, and I was in Bodh Gaya to see uh, the Bodhi tree beneath which the Buddha sat and became enlightened. And I got really, really, really sick there. And I happened to be there when uh, Prime Minister Modi decided to demonetize the currency. And so I was trapped because I couldn't, I was too weak to go to the ATM and fight the long lines and lines in the crowds. I couldn't get new money. No one would take the old money because they didn't have enough change. And so I just kind of laid in bed for, I was pretty delirious for, for two days. The hotel got concerned about me and kept saying, don't you want to go to the doctor? And I finally admitted to them, I can't. I don't have any money. Um, the doctors were supposed to take the old money, but they were refusing to. And they said, why didn't you tell us? You know, we'll give you some of the new currency, and then we'll put it on your bill, and you can pay it with your credit card. So I, I, there's always a way. You know, you always find a way out. It's, it's, I don't worry about stuff like that. Uh, I love your example of the haircuts uh, because that's definitely one of the struggles when you're traveling, uh, especially if it's a, a different language. Like I'm traveling around um, South America now. We're in Colombia. And, uh, you know, I don't know much Spanish. So, you know, got the haircut and I was trying to explain to them what I wanted. And they did a phenomenal job, by the way. But still, it, yeah, was, yeah. it was challenging. I, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that example because uh, sometimes you take these things for granted. Like in Vancouver, uh, where I'm from, you can just go to my local barber anywhere and just tell them exactly what I want. Boom, it's done. Right, Here, right. not, as, 
unless you have Google Translate or unless you know the language. So I, I can relate to your struggles there. And definitely, uh, you, what would you mention about medical and dental is obviously tough on the road. Our son actually has a cavity now. Uh, we just noticed that we're like, okay, what should we do? Uh, we don't have dental care when we're traveling. So we'll probably just end up going to a, a local place here in Medellin, Colombia and just paying uh, out of our pocket. And uh, usually it's so cheap uh, that uh, it's right, actually cheaper right. than doing it back in the U.S. where you're from. Where I'm from. Well, I'll tell you, um, it, I, I mentioned before that um, I'm having some problems with my joints. Uh, I have a bad hip and a couple of bad knees. And uh, everyone was telling me I should look into having knee replacements, and I just really did not want to go through that. Um, and I also didn't want to have to deal with the cost, you know. So I did some research, and this is one of the reasons that I'm in Milan right now, because a friend of mine who lives here, um, she's from Venezuela originally and resettled here. She was the very first test case for an experimental stem cell procedure on her knee. And she had a 40% improvement by just having stem cells inserted into her knee with, you know, a shot. Um, and so she set it up for me to come and I had x-rays and met with the doctor and he said, yes, you're a candidate for it. So 10 days ago. I had, they, they take fat out with liposuction, so they're using your own cells. They extract the stem cells from the fat, and then they uh, put it back into the knee, and it starts to grow cartilage. And it was a two-hour outpatient thing, and they tell me that it's been perfected enough now that the average patient receives an 80% improvement. Now, two weeks ago, I was searching for elevators and escalators to get my luggage up and down from the metro. I could barely go up and down stairs. And I was out, I walked for six miles on Tuesday. Uh, today I went out and basically ran down the stairs to the metro without holding the handrail. These are things that are not even available in the United States yes, yet because the FDA, the Federal drug agency or whatever it is, Food and Drug Administration, has not approved it yet. And it cost me less than 2,000 euros to have both knees done. And I don't have to deal with surgery and lung recoveries. So, you know, as you say, things are very cheap. Um, uh, they wanted me to take a regimen of antibiotics after the knee, and it cost me seven dollars for the antibiotics and it would have cost two hundred dollars in the US. People think it's it's kind of dangerous to be running around and getting medical stuff done elsewhere, but I mean this is this is first world, you know, medical service for a a smidgen of what I would pay in the United States and not having to deal with the insurance. Yeah, so thanks for sharing, uh, you know, the stories. I think uh, people are sometimes scared of traveling because of their own health issues and they're scared of the medical systems overseas. But, uh, you know, in most countries around the world, they have uh, very competent, um, you know, doctors and dentists and uh, yeah. medical aid and hospitals. And uh, it's just like back home, uh, except it's much cheaper, like we both said. Uh, exactly. So, yeah. Barbara, I'm interested in your travel blog. It's called Hole in the Donut. You've already elaborated to the, the name. Uh, you were a hole in the, in the donut, so to speak, and now you're no longer a hole. You're filled your life 
and you're doing that with travels and experiences and memories and uh, you know um, uh, just um, adventure uh, so tell us about what the major themes and topics that you cover on your blog I saw that you've actually been awarded best blogger best baby bloomer blog best uh, you know like best 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 photographer etc so you've got a lot of awards and accolades tell us a little bit about the journey on your blog and the major themes and topics you're covering well um my blog the whole name of my blog is hole in the donut cultural travel um and i write about culture which is pretty broad you know i mean that can be dance or art or music or food or uh, language or religion you know it, it encompasses a lot of different things but there's a reason for that because i i'm fond uh, of saying that if we get to know one another better we're less likely to want to kill one another and i think a lot of the problems in the world today are, are caused by fear and especially with americans who you know we, we have an isolationist history um, and uh, it, very few Americans, comparatively, travel overseas outside of Mexico, Canada, and the Caribbean. Um, now, part of that is just because the average American only gets two weeks of vacation, so it's pretty hard to go to Southeast Asia if you're, you know, 36 hours flight each way and you only have two weeks. So I understand that. But even those that do go, um, say, to Europe, uh, they tend to do either all-inclusive vacations or they stay at their comfortable uh, U.S. chain and have their comfortable U.S. experience. And, and I really want to encourage people, uh, first, to understand that travel is not dangerous. You know, I'm a 65-year-old woman who's been traveling around for 10 years, and the only place I've ever had a problem in my life while traveling was many years ago, I think 2002, in Hawaii where I was robbed. I've never had any problem in any other country. Now I'm smart, you know, I mean, I don't flash a lot of money, I don't wear a lot of jewelry, I, I travel smart. But still, there's an idea in America that travel is a dangerous thing to do. And I'm here to tell you, it's not. And I want people, if they see that I can do it, I want them to think, if she can do it, I can do it too. And I want them to get out of their hotels. I want them to stay into little in little local guest houses or Airbnbs owned by local people or you know, some way that they can have a local experience and connect with the people who actually live in the country. Um, and, I th and I think if we all did a little more of that, we would have less fear and it w the world would basically be a better place. <laughs> so that's why I write about culture. Mm. Yeah, definitely uh, travel uh, uh, changes not only yourself, but the people you're around. And it, it, it can and will and is changing the world, I feel. Um, you know, on a much uh, more grassroots level than you think of world change. I think just us interacting, us traveling, us changing the stereotypes of what it is uh, to be an American traveler or a Canadian traveler or an ethnic minority traveler or just sure. uh, Colombia. I'm in Colombia, for example, and everyone thinks Colombia is dangerous and uh, uh, there's drugs and uh, cartels everywhere, gang violence. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, Colombia is just like any other country. There's families uh, taking the kids to school. There's uh, shops and restaurants. And, you know, like I feel so safe. I'm walking around with my kids and people sure. are so friendly. Here and I, I, I just want to uh, correct the incorrect stereotypes that people have about a place like Colombia, which is so wrong according to the media biases. 
Well, you know, they say that if somebody has a good experience, they might tell one or two people. And if they have a bad experience, they're going to tell 100 people. So I think that's what happens is we see one or two things happen that are negative and it gets blown out of proportion. And we tend to uh, kind of get sucked into the negative media coverage. I don't take, I take most of that with a grain of salt. I mean, I'm not stupid. I'm not going to go to Syria or Afghanistan. But you know, in general, I think that most places in the world are pretty safe. Yeah, oh, by the I, way, I, and Medellin, by the way, is on my list. Yeah, <laughs> as, as a nomad, uh, you know, you got to come here. There, there's a lot of uh, facilities for digital nomads and uh, a great community of digital nomads. And uh, the prices are very cheap here, too. You can get an apartment for a about 250 to 300 U.S. for the whole month, uh, yeah. which is a really phenomenal pricing. So food's cheap, transport's cheap, uh, sightseeing's cheap. Uh, as long as you know Spanish, you're good to go. <laughs> That's our biggest struggle is the lack of Spanish mm -hmm. on our part. I speak fluent Spanish. So there you go. There you go. So you'll have no problems whatsoever, Barbara. <laughs> uh, on your blog, you actually cover a unique area called travel gear. I had a chance to look at your post about that. Uh, tell us about um, what are some of your travel gear uh, over, uh, you know, uh, over your travels, and what would you recommend other people traveling uh, to take with them in their packs? Well, in the beginning, I uh, have to say that I succumbed to all the glitzy stuff, um, and uh, I thought I had to have. Uh, you know, the silk sleep, uh, the silk, um, what do you call it, sleep sack. And I had to have uh, the tin, not tin, but there's a reflective metal uh, blanket that folds up to the size of a pack of cards and, and the, the special bottle for water with the filtration and all of that. And you know what? I don't, I don't use any of it anymore. Um, it's, it's just a way to get you to spend more money. I travel with I'm trying to think what, you know, I have a um, uh, an acupressure point hook that's sort of like a U that lets me, if because from carrying the backpack, you know, I get sore muscles and it lets me get at that. That's something I wouldn't want to travel without. I have a travel yoga mat that's very, very thin, which I use. And aside from that, the rest of my equipment is basically what, what I use to do my job. So my laptop, my camera and lenses, uh, I have a couple of phones. I have a world sim in my phone, um, which is marvelous because um, I have an unlocked phone and I arrive in a country, I turn the phone on when I step off the plane, it connects to a local network and every country in the world is, is connected and I can it tells me how much per minute in each country and uh, how much per text uh, to send and, and how much per megabyte of data. And so I know if it's a country that's very expensive, I rely on Wi-Fi. Like here in Italy, it costs me eight cents a minute for, uh, to receive a call and nine cents a minute to, to dial out. Texts are always free to receive. So I have that in my one phone and then I carry a backup phone where when I'm say in Thailand anytime I'm in a place more than a month I'll buy a local SIM card and pop it in because then I can call the local taxi company they can call me back you know um, that's though that's pretty much the extent of the equipment that I carry um, tell us more about the travel SIM card, uh, sorry the global SIM card I don't have one of those myself um, how much does it cost uh, to get one of those and how does it work? 
Well, I use a company called Truphone, T-R-U-P-H-O-N-E.com. It's a prepaid, um, so you buy the SIM card, which I think is like 30 bucks, and they send it to you in the mail, and they have, oh, I don't remember how many countries, maybe nine countries that are what they call Truphone countries, and in those countries, it's eight or nine cents a minute, something like that. Uh, so, for instance, uh, they're based in the UK, US, uh, I think maybe Brazil is it is uh, but Poland, Germany. Um, there's an there's just oh Hong Kong is another one, and what it does it just connects to uh, whatever's the closest tower. I've got my account set up so that I I load it with seventy five dollars. They automatically top it off when I fall below seventy five using my credit card. And, you know, I can get a detailed report of any time I want of what my expenses were. And they work, it works in almost every country I've ever been to. I had, I even used it in Cuba. Um, trying to think where I had some problems. In Eastern Europe, it was a little dicey with um, Albania, I think, and Kosovo were both problems. Um, and sometimes I could connect and sometimes I couldn't. But, you know, Wi-Fi is so ubiquitous nowadays that in those few instances where it doesn't work, I, I just rely on the Wi-Fi. Yeah, in our case, uh, we're pretty much fully relying on the Wi-Fi. I mean, we don't have any data. Uh, we, uh, uh, we actually canceled our phone plans back in mm. Canada because, uh, you know, I don't want to be paying every month. So basically, we're traveling, we rely on Wi-Fi. And for the most part, it's good. Obviously, uh, you know, even when I'm doing these... Uh, these uh, hangouts or these interviews, there's some uh, uh, choppiness and, uh, you know, life is a digital nomad means you're never going to have perfect Wi-Fi. No, I, you, you don't because like you and I discussed, I, we had to wait until I was in a place that had reliable Wi-Fi to do this because you don't want it to cut out in the middle of it. But I'm finding over the years that it's getting much more prevalent and uh, kind of depends a bit on the country. You know, you don't have as much in Italy here in the coffee shops as you would have, say, in the U.S. or Canada. But um, it, it's, it's almost everywhere. Um, so, you know, uh, one of the big questions, Barbara, is the time and money question. Uh, most people don't have the time and they don't have the money to travel the world. You've been doing this, uh, you know, uh, for several years now. And uh, I'd love to hear about how you finance these travels around the world. Okay, well, I have to give you sort of a two-pronged answer. Um, I had to make a decision. If I wanted to go on the road full-time, I couldn't also support a house. So I couldn't handle either rent or mortgage payment and utilities and insurance and taxes and maintenance and all of that. And so that's what led me to make the decision to uh, first sell the house and then give up the apartment. That's not for everybody. And in fact, mine happened um, in stages. So it was kind of like peeling an onion, you know, first I got rid of the house, then I went into the apartment. But even then, I kept the car because I thought, well, I'm coming back every Christmas to visit my family and I need a car in the U.S. It's a huge country. Uh, except about three or four years ago, I came back and I've been paying insurance on it, which was about 600 bucks a year. And I found all four tires had rotted off because it sat in one place all year. And that was another 600. And I thought, 
this is crazy. For $1,200, I can rent a car for a month. I don't need this car, so I sold it. So now I don't have anything. I have a few, a few little boxes at my sister's house, things you can't get rid of, you know, like tax records and photo, family photos and some mementos, but not much. Um, and uh, I, uh, for about, I'm trying to think now, I started my travels in 2007, early 2007. It, it took about two years before I started making money because I had to build up audience and such. Um, and then when I did, I made most of my money through advertising. And, you know, Google is, uh, the internet is an ever-changing target. And so the type of advertising that I was selling, text link ads, at some point Google um, said it was against their terms of service and they started coming down hard on people who were buying them and all of my business went away overnight. So then I had to find another model and uh, you know I did for a few years a combination of selling some photography, uh, I sold to magazines for publication, um, I did a lot of freelance writing. I was writing at 1.4 or 5 freelance articles a week for different people. Um, uh, I was doing a few sponsorships. But um, uh, what happened for me is I, I decided at 62 to take my retirement with the Social Security. And I basically don't need to, to earn, I don't need to worry about earning much money anymore. So I've I've cleared my blog of all the advertising. You know the way that most bloggers are making money these days is to get paid for allowing guest posts to be on their blog, which is just another way for somebody to get a link back to their site and make you look more popular in Google's eyes. I don't want to do that because my blog's a persona blog. It's I often say that it, yes, it's about travel, but it's more about my journey. Um, my means to creating a joyful life just happens to be travel and it's more about how I became true to myself instead of staying in the corporate world and doing something I hated going out and doing what I love and so if I put start putting all kinds of articles up by other people it kind of takes away from you know the atmosphere of the blog and and so I just made a decision that I would live on my social security and and what other, you know, a few other little streams that I have from an occasional article I write. And I am working on an ebook uh, about uh, destinations in Europe that are probably not on your bucket list, but should be. Things, places that are little known and little visited, but are fantastic. Uh, so hopefully I'll have some money coming in from that. But um, I don't live in luxury, I'm very careful. I also, one of the things I do, you know, have a budget, and um, some of the places that I go are pretty expensive. I mean, Milan, Italy, for example, is pretty expensive. Now, I'm really lucky here because I have a friend who lives here, and I'm staying in her apartment. But there are places, uh, you know, I've just come from Geneva, Switzerland, which was eye-wateringly expensive, uh, and I uh, offset that by staying in places that's, that are very cheap for the other part of the year. So Asia is very cheap for me and as you say places like Medellin, I look for those places where I, I, I like the culture, where I can stay part of the year. And, and basically I let myself be a little lavish when I'm in Europe, you know? And when I'm in Thailand for instance, I eat for $3 a day. 
Amazing. Uh, you know, some great tips there on budget travel. Uh, you know, just things like staying uh, with friends. I actually have an interview with uh, the founder of Couchsurfing later on today. That's a great way Ooh. to Couchsurf uh, your way around the world. Um, you know, um, uh, you know, just like uh, earning income through things like ebooks, online courses, uh, uh, your retirement thing. Uh, that's a, that's a great way as well. Um, so, Barbara, one one of the things I noticed about your blog uh, right when I visited was the amazing photography. Uh, you know, uh, you've been awarded top photographer in several different publications. Uh, you sell your photographs and you take amazing, amazing pictures. Uh, Thank so, you. Yeah, you're welcome. I, I, I really mean it when I say that. Uh, Barbara, what would you say uh, to someone who wants to take better pictures when they travel? Because almost everyone wants to capture the moment, capture the monument, capture the experience. It's so hard to do that. Uh, tell us how you do it through your photography. You know, there is a big, big difference between the person who's hired by a corporation to come out and do a photo shoot. And they, can, they have the luxury of waiting for the right light the right weather, the right day, the right time of day. It's, we don't have that luxury as travel writers because maybe we're being hosted on a tour and we only have an hour in a place and we have, we have to shoot, we have to get the shot no matter what the weather is or what's happening. And so I kind of embrace that. Um, there's this um, thing that photographers refer to called the golden hour. So it's just as the sun is coming up in the morning and just as it's setting at night when everything turns gold and that's the ideal time to shoot. And that is the ideal light. But I can tell you that less than 10% of my photography is done at that time of day. So I think it's really important to two things. One is to know your camera. Um, and it has to become an extension of your hand. You don't have time to sit and think, what, what's my exposure got to be? You just have to know. And that only comes with practice. And so I tell people who want to be photographers, you just have to go out and you have to shoot every day. And the other thing is, don't let weather or light or any kind of condition deter you from doing photography. People say during the, during the middle of the day, the light is flat. Yes, the light is flat during the middle of the day. But there are places where you can only shoot during the middle of the day because they're canyon-like, and the only light that you get is at high noon. So you, you just have to learn to work with the light. And oh, I, I will tell you one of my tips, especially in, um, in places where I'm shooting in midday, and I have heavy shadows uh, from, you know, sort of, let's say, a canyon-like situation, a street with high buildings, and half of the street is in shadow, but the other side is in, in blinding light, or even in a big open space with lots of blinding sunlight. If you are taking that uh, shot with all of that light, if you step into the shade to take it, it will come out much better than if you're standing in the sunlight taking it. And I frankly don't know why that is, but it is. So, you know, I, as I say, I just, I shoot a million photos and not everyone is good. And then I throw out the bad ones at night and keep the good ones. And there's a little bit of the, you know, the, the monkey syndrome that if a monkey sits at a typewriter long enough, he's going to type a, a, a sentence that we can read in English. So it's, you know, if you take enough photos, you're going to get some good ones. But I will say that once you know your camera, and once you, you embrace the conditions around you, you're going to start seeing your photography improve immensely. 
You know, there is another tip I can say. Sure. Um, I was always taught, and I've been, I've been uh, a photographer since, well, my uncle gave me an old ground, uh, Leica with ground glass lenses when I was 11 years old. So that's a lot of years. Um, and I was always taught that you should never shoot at a slower speed than the focal length of your lens. So, you know, if you've got a, a an 80 millimeter lens, you shouldn't be shooting, you should be shooting one, 125th or, or greater. Um, I never really paid too much attention to that because I have a very, very steady hand. So it wasn't uncommon for me to even go down to, um, you know, a quarter of a second and hand, held the, hand hold the camera. And then um, I think part of it came from in the early years of, of being a travel writer, I used to wait for everybody to leave a scene so I could get this beautiful shot of the monument or the building or whatever, you know, the landscape. And then one time my dad um, said to me, where are all the people in your shots? I don't want to just see the buildings. I want to see the local people and what they, what they wear and how they act and how they live. And it, it changed my idea of what photography should be. And so I don't wait for scenes to clear anymore. Um, I take them with people in them. And because of that, the speed at which I was shooting became more critical. Um, so rather than looking for depth of field, I was looking uh, to stop the motion because I didn't want things to be blurry. And that, that made me start shooting at faster speeds. And I started tinkering with that. And I now shoot at 1 320th of a second almost all the time or higher. Because what I found was while I was getting really crisp, clean photos before, once I started shooting at fast speeds, um, it was like a quantum leap in the quality of my photography in, in terms of the sharpness of it. Awesome, great tips there, Barbara. Uh, so you've established yourself as a you know a nomad, as a photographer, as a blogger. Uh, you've traveled around the world. Uh, tell us about what is your vision going forward uh, in terms of uh, your travel mm. life, your blog. Um, tell us about uh, the next few months, the next few years, and beyond. Oh gosh, I you know I don't have a crystal ball, Ricky. I I guess I ask myself that same question. I, I can't ever see myself stopping traveling. Because I know if I, even if I get an apartment in Thailand, I'm going to be gone half the time because I get itchy feet. Um, I have this innate curiosity about other cultures and how other people live and understanding our world. Um, and and then, of course, I get the, the words in my head and I have to get the words out somehow. And so... I, I, I've always kind of jokingly said that I want to see 100 countries before I die. Well, I'm going to be at 91 or 92 by the end of this season, so I'm not too far from that, you know. And I've only done two countries in South America and very little of the Caribbean. And, I mean, there's a lot more I want to see, you know. I'm High on my list right now is uh, Tibet and Easter Island, uh, Chile, Colombia, Bolivia. Um, there's, I'd, I'd love to go to Taiwan. I mean, there's just a, I want to go to Papua New Guinea. <laughs> it never ends. I started out with a very small list. My first six months around the world were, because I thought I was going to die before I saw everything, I made a list of every place I had ever wanted to go. 
And by the time I finished that list, it was 17 countries. It, the list had doubled. You know, it's like it, it never gets shorter. It only gets longer. And then while you've been to a country, maybe, maybe there's other places in that country you want to go. Every year I find myself in France and Italy. I spent a month in France this year. I'm spending a month in Italy. And each time I go to a different place. This year I, I went to Dijon in France, which was an absolutely fantastic city. Probably now my favorite city in France. So I don't think I'll ever stop. Um, I'd like to have a little more time to do some uh, writing. I, you know, I've often threatened to write a memoir. And maybe if I spend six months in one place in Thailand, I'll, I'll do that. Um, but I, I basically, I guess, you know, the Dalai Lama said it best that uh, what we're supposed to do in life is be happy. And I'm happy with what I'm doing. I Maybe if I settle someplace for part of the year, I'll look for opportunities to help people. I've done a little bit of that on the road. I helped this family in Nepal set up a business. Uh, when the opportunity presents itself, I do that. I don't work with volunteer organizations and N local NGOs because they're mostly corrupt. So I look for individual opportunities to, where I have the talents to help someone personally. And, and I'd like to do a little more of that. That always makes me feel like I've accomplished something on this earth, you know? And even though I'm living my dream, I still have this sort of inner feeling that it's not enough, that there's something more I'm supposed to do. And I haven't figured out what that is, so maybe I'll spend some time figuring that out. Yeah, there you go. That could be it. That could be your crystal ball telling you that uh, it's all about uh, contributing, giving back, making a difference. And uh, I had a chance to look at some of those Nepal blog posts on your site there. Yeah, uh, you know, that's something we do. Actually, as we're speaking, I'm actually in an orphanage volunteering. Uh, we're staying in uh, YWAM, Youth with a Mission, and uh, we're just teaching English. And uh, it's our way of giving back. Uh, you know, we're getting a super great deal here. It's like uh, $15 US per day, including meals. So in return, we're, we're doing some uh, volunteer work, helping out. And it really feels good. Um, not for them, but for us, because sure. uh, yeah, we feel we're being impacted uh, by their generosity and their kindness and their love. Uh, so yeah, volunteering is amazing uh, for both parties, you, them, and the world. <laughs> right. You just have to be careful, though, that you're not, especially in Nepal, you know, so many of the local NGOs are corrupt. Um, they say that they're helping the orphans, but the money doesn't go to them. It ends up in their pockets. So if you vet someplace carefully, I'm all for that. So uh, to end off here, Barbara, there might be someone who's listening and watching this uh, interview intently, and uh, they're kind of watching from the couch. <laughs> they're watching <laughs> from the bedroom. They're listening in their car, and they're living the grind, uh, you know, the rat race, and they yep. haven't left the corporate job yep. like you have. Uh, what would you do to say to that person? I mean, there's the age-old anthem, uh, you know, just do it, Nike says it, but uh, tell us about, you know, your um, um, advice to that person who's listening and is in a state of despair and wants to travel more? Well, there is, there is uh, something to be said for the Nike saying, just do it. But I realize it's not quite that easy for people. Especially, you know, I, I didn't have a husband and I didn't have kids. And so I didn't have those kind of responsibilities. And the only person I was going to impact was myself, be it good or bad. Um, so there are a lot of considerations. And I don't want to, I don't purport to be an expert 
in, in, every, in anyone else's situation. I can only speak to my own. I knew that for me, I was just very unhappy. And I, as I said, from the time I was 11 years old, all I ever wanted to do was be a travel photographer and writer. So I, I say to people two things. One is, what is it you love? First, you have to figure out what it is you love. And then secondly, and, and maybe this is going to sound a little crazy. You know, my mother said to me at one point when I was a younger woman, uh, how many times can you, you're getting older, how many times can you recreate yourself? Because I always had about a 10-year attention span, and then I would be on to something else. And I said to her, as many times as I need to. And I've done that over and over again in my life. And the way I've done it is by visualizing what I want to create. So I believe that we create our own reality. And I believe that if we can visualize something down to the very last detail, we can create it. And, and that's what I, when I finally realized laying in my sick bed that I had to finally do what I'd always wanted to do, I started to, I started to sort, of, sort of build a mental image of what my life would look like as a travel blocker. And you know where I would stay, and what the rooms would look like, and how I would interact with people, and 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 what I would be writing, and and just, I mean, right down to the colors and the shapes and the sounds. And you know, I look back on that, and and it is exactly as I imagined it. I think anybody can do that if you if you have faith. The the other thing is, what people say to me, weren't you afraid? Well, yes, I had some fear. But faith and fear cannot exist in the same space. If you have faith that you can do something, fear can't get in. And I just kind of stay in faith. I believe in myself. And, and once people figure out what it is they love and figure out how they want to, I guess people should focus on the what, not the how. Because we get mired down in the how. Oh, well, if I do this, I won't be able to keep my home. Well, so what? Just let go of that outcome. Yeah, you know, uh, beautifully said, um, at the end of the day, you have to take action. You got to do it. And uh, you, you're living the life now on the other side. And uh, it's so inspiring. Yeah. Uh, to hear your story, Barbara. Uh, you know, digital nomading at 60 plus, it is amazing. I don't know what, where I'll be when I'm uh, in my 60s, but, uh, you know, I can just imagine I'll be also digital nomading in my 60s too. So thank you for inspiring me and uh, to thank you for inspiring uh, millions of uh, thousands of people on your blog and social media. And, uh, you know, thanks for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm happy to share it. I always want to encourage people to travel. Me too, me too, me too. And that's why we do these episodes to inspire people to travel no matter what stage of life they're at. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're divorced, whether you're a family like myself, whether you're um, you know, retired, whether you are in your 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s, 20s, or even older. I yeah. actually haven't, I haven't interviewed anyone who's over 70 as a digital nomad yet, but I'm looking for that person. So if you know any, uh, reach ah, out. You should talk to Evelyn Hannon who's from Canada, Toronto, and she has the site journeywomen.com. And Evelyn was the first, it's not a technically a typical blog, but she was the first person who's doing what we're doing, I think, ever. 
and she's 75. Well, uh, 76 thanks for that recommendation. I'm going to reach out to yeah. her and then, uh, get her on the show as well. Yeah. Thanks for that. It's, it's, you bet, you bet. I'm happy to, uh, if, if you want me to connect you in some other way, let me know. But thank you for having me today. It's been fun. Um, uh, sorry, a little bit of a technical uh, glitch here. Um, wanted to thank you, uh, Barbara, once again for being on the show. And uh, once again, uh, you know, uh, maybe to end off with, share with them uh, your site. Uh, how can they connect with you on your website and social media and follow your journeys around the world? Okay. Well, my website is holeinthedonut, D-O-N-U-T, dot com. And if you go to the site, it's got all the links for uh, all the social media. I'm on all of them. Uh, but uh, basically, I'm hole in the donut everywhere. So Facebook.com, front slash hole in the donut. Same with Instagram. Same with Twitter, you know. Uh, and I'll have the link below. So if you wanted to find out more about Barbara, take a look at her amazing photography, amazing uh, travel exploits from around the world, her travel adventures, travel volunteering, travel gear, travel destinations, and much, much more. Make sure you check out her website. Uh, once again, hole in the donut. Uh, so congratulations on filling that hole with the love of travel and, uh, you know, inspiring others to travel as well. Thanks again, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me, Ricky. It's been a pleasure. It has indeed. And thanks everyone for tuning into this episode of Digital Nomad Mastery. As you can see by this interview, it is never, never, never too late to travel. Start now and continue. You'll never stop, as Barbara has alluded to. Uh, and I know in my case, I don't think I'll ever stop either. And I know as you listening, if you start, you won't stop either. So uh, once again, thanks again for tuning in to this episode of Digital Nomad Mastery, the podcast and the video cast where we teach you how to make money while traveling the world. <laughs>